The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Well, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter, so if you want to turn there, we're actually just going to be looking at the first six verses, and the sermon title is Changed, so it's, the title is Elect Exiles, and it's going to be a little different than your bulletin. I would just encourage you, as you think about First Peter, to remember, this is a real person, okay? Peter is like the most lively, uh, easy-to-remember character of the apostles. We remember that it was Peter who had this miraculous catch of fish that was performed by Jesus of which caused him to be a worshiper. You remember, he was like, Lord, you know, nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the nets, but you know, there's not any, any fish here. We've been fishing all night. And he lets down the nets and history was changed as that boat was so full and the other boat that they're both starting to sink. And... Peter falls down at Jesus' feet and says, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. We remember Peter, right? We remember it's Peter who, when Jesus came walking on the water, it was Peter who said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. And so Jesus says, Come. And he peels his fingers off of the boat and puts one foot in the water and then another and lets go. And he starts walking on the water. But then he started to sink when he saw the wind and the waves and Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. We remember Peter. It was Peter when Jesus said, who do you think I am? It was Peter who said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood hasn't revealed to this to you, but my father. It was Peter who said, when Jesus said, do you all want to leave too to the disciples? And Peter says, to where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It was Peter who saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. He saw his glory. And that might be what he's referring to in verse 8 and 9 of making reference that those who haven't seen him, but I have seen him, and he certainly references in 2 Peter, this was a big deal to Peter. He saw the glory of of Jesus in a glorified state. Of course, he also saw Moses and Elijah, and he wanted to make an altar to all three because they all three look so impressive. Let's just worship all three because the Bible says he didn't know what he was saying. We remember Peter. He was a bit impulsive, right? He's the same Peter who took out a sword when Jesus was arrested, and he swinging for Malchus's head but missed and only got an ear, thankfully, It's the same Peter who denied Jesus three times after telling him, I'm ready. I'm ready to die for you. And we know that Peter's last look of Jesus before Jesus died was Jesus and Peter make eye contact as Peter denies him for the third time. And it says him and Jesus, Jesus turns and looked at him. That would have been a pretty eerie look that he told him and then it says he went out and wept bitterly thankfully that's not the end of the story for Peter because Jesus rose from the dead and when he rose 
he told, go and tell the disciples and Peter, he's still one of them too, go get him. Right? That's the same Peter. And it was the same Peter who sprinted to the tomb when Mary came and said, we can't find him, his grave is empty. And him and John took off for the tomb and John was a little faster than Peter. And when Peter got there and went in, and he, did, he knew, as John knew, it was the Lord. And so we know Peter. We know Peter is the one who had been fishing all night again and caught nothing. And someone from the shore says, throw in that on the other side. <laughs> and all of a sudden they pull up 153 fish. And John says, it's the Lord. What's Peter do? Just dives right in. Got to get to Jesus. who had breakfast for him. And then he restores him, and three times he says to Peter, do you love me? Be my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Well, 50 days later, Peter started feeding sheep. Because at Pentecost, he stood up and he proclaimed the gospel and brings together in Acts 2 several psalms and talks about how Jesus has made, God has made him Lord in Christ. And how we need to repent. 3,000 people are converted. It's Peter who heals the man who's been uh, lame since birth. And at the beautiful gate, they're going to, to the prayers. And this person's asking for money. And Peter says, silver or gold, I do not have. But what I do have, you, I do have, I give you. And he commanded him in the name of Jesus to walk. And he walked. You see, it's Peter that also was used by the Lord to raise Tabitha from the dead. Peter. It's the same Peter that's still feeding the sheep. And near the end of his life, probably 62, 63 AD, as soft persecution is starting to mount, people are being maligned for their faith. We're told they're, they're experiencing evil conduct. They're, don't revile for reviling because you're being reviled and they're maligning you because you don't go along with them and in the dissipation and the sexual stuff that they're doing and you've been called out from that and you're starting to experience some persecution as this pre-Christian audience is being hit with the challenges of persecution is just starting to mount. This is before Nero is really uh, decides that he's going to start using Christians to uh, light lamps and be the, be the torches of the city. As he would kill a lot of Christians and blame the, the burning of the city on the Christians. This is before that. Before Peter experiences that, and now we're in a post-Christian environment. And it's very much like the pre-Christian environment. And Peter's still feeding his sheep. And he says to these Gentile believers... He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with the blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Well, I think we can relate to being grieved by various trials, and yet Peter is calling, calling us to rejoice. How in the world do you do that? Well, the epistle of 1 Peter is meant to help us get some thick skin, some low expectations, realistic expectations. I love Bruce Wiley talking about his vacation recently, and it was a low expectation vacation. And it was communicated well in advance to the family members, low expectation vacation. So that if anything exceeds expectations, you're going to be excited. I've told people that getting married before, lower your expectations. And I mean it because they have such high expectations that they're disappointed. Like, you're, you're together for life now. Lower some expectations. First Peter gives us some lowering of some expectations of what you really expect the world's going to deliver to you. What did you really think the world was going to give to you? But there's high hopes and high expectations in the world to come so that we can have joy in the midst of trials, and that the grace of God would enable us to keep doing good, big theme in the book, according to the will of God, in the midst of evil, as you're following the ultimate sojourner, Jesus himself. He's the one who suffered and then was glorified, and as we follow in his footsteps, we too will suffer in this life before we too are glorified. And so we're following him. And so we see that Peter is writing in his day, his culture and context, as I just kind of briefly mentioned, is that as these Christians are now starting to live a lot different than the world. And and, and they're, they're doing some strange things. They didn't worship all the Roman gods. They worshiped one God. And they said he was Lord. And they didn't say Caesar was Lord. They rejected the sexual promiscuity of their culture. They had some strange worship practices, which they partake of uh, communion when they meet, and it's, they're being accused of being like cannibals, which isn't true, but falsely accused. And their, their behavior and manner of life is different than the world around them, so much so that as they're being different, the government officials are starting to discriminate against them and mark them out. And because they're different, their employers are starting to treat them harshly. And because they're Christians, some of them being converted, and some of uh, these women have non-Christian husbands, and so they're being told how to respond to their non-Christian husbands... They're not losing their lives, but they are feeling like they're losing out in this world. And so there isn't this organized state persecution yet. You see, it's a lot like our culture, is it? And so I think today in our, in our tendency, as I'm reading this book, Evangelism in Exile, he says, he talks about this illustration of the car alarm. And what happens when, you, when a car alarm goes off these days, what do you do? I mean, when you hear a car alarm at night in your neighborhood and you hear a car alarm, what do you do? 
Absolutely nothing, because you realize that's just somebody's car alarm going off again, got it stuck. And what he's saying is this is how the world is responding to Christians. Is there like car alarms? There they go again. (laughs) All upset, all, all getting bent out of shape, and you know, they just ignore us because they're like, oh, here they go. Well, we have to recognize that though persecution hasn't come, it's more of this soft persecution where we are seeing in our culture and context, we're seeing a new, uh, you know, a soft type of persecution. And just to give you a, uh, a picture of that, Tim Keller was interviewed recently in World Magazine, and it was posted in early December, but it was actually released in World Magazine on Christmas Day. And so this is, this is fresh off the press, a little over a month old. And he's asked some questions and they, in this interview, and they say, his first question is, many Christians struggle to steward their relationship with the world's culture. Do you see the world's culture as becoming increasingly hostile towards Christian values, or perhaps it's just always been hostile? Keller, absolutely, yes. The culture is more hostile to Christianity, whether speaking of the academy, the media, government, business, popular entertainment, the arts, or social media, our culture is growing more hostile toward Christian beliefs and values. It's not the same as it always has been. The question is, how do you respond to this? He says, requires a a week's answer or a sentence. He says, a lot for the sentence. First, repent for the ways Christians' inconsistent lives have harmed the church's credibility. That's first. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. Third, don't let people know you're a believer. Don't hide it. Fourth, make sure you're not harsh or clumsy with your words. Be sure it's the gospel that offends and not you. And last, don't be afraid of persecution. Jesus promises to be with you. Sounds a lot like 1 Peter, doesn't it? What do you see then as the greatest threat to modern-day Christians? Keller? In the U.S., I think the second greatest threat is the new progressive secular ideology that's coming to dominate the academy, the government, the corporate world, the mainstream media. It's against freedom of speech, deeply opposed to religious people expressing or practicing many aspects of their faith in public. However, the first and greatest threat is the failure of the American church itself. The mainline church wedded itself to liberal political parties And the evangelical church has done that with its conservative political parties. So now we're seen as nothing but a political power block as Christians. And also there have been numerous egregious examples of hypocrisy with many prominent church leaders being found guilty of various forms of abuse and corrupt behavior. Instead of admitting past ways in which the American church has participated in the marginalization and exploitation of various peoples, A vociferous segment of the modern evangelical church has refused to repent and listen, instead has become harsh and denunciatory in its communication. Then he's asked, what has changed? And he says, well, in the the late 80s, he says, uh, the secular culture was dominated by the psychological Everyone was into the 12 steps, talking about codependency, self-esteem, other therapeutic themes. Today, secular culture is dominated by the sociological. The emphasis on therapeutic individualism is still there, but it has been somewhat supplanted by group identity and themes of power and justice. I would just say along those lines, I think 
this is where the church is really, Christians are going to have to do a lot more wrestling, right? Because we know that, you know, back in the day, all you had in Christian psychology was Jay Adams or Larry Crabb, and that was it. And now there's a lot of thought and a lot of great stuff written about psychology. We still got a long way to go. But who do we point to and say, man, that's the sociologist. Like, they're really, they're, they're really thought this through. They just say, well, that's CRT, and they just write everybody off. Like, no, that's not CRT. But everybody thinks that's the boogeyman. And so we have to learn how to wrestle through this. And there's a lot, there is some bad stuff about CRT. But we're image bearers, and we have to think through these things as believers. And he says this, a lot of pastors are struggling, particularly against the various, this is the question, a lot of pastors are struggling, particularly against the various shifts during the pandemic. People are leaving churches over pandemic restrictions, the election, racial injustice, political indifferences. Many pastors are leaving the ministry. Have you ever dealt with something like this during your ministry, or is this something unique to our time today? How do you navigate tricky political ideological waters? Good question. (laughs) He'd say, I'd say that culture is definitely more polarized than it ever has been, and I've never seen the kind of conflicts in churches in the past that we see today. In virtually every church, there is a smaller or larger body of Christians who have been radicalized to the left or to the right by extremely effective and completely immersive internet and social media loops, news feeds, and communities. People are bombarded 12 hours a day with pieces that present a particular political point of view, and the main way it seeks to persuade is not through our Argument, but through outrage. People are being formed by this immersive form of public discourse far more than they're being formed by the church. This is creating a crisis, and no, I haven't faced anything like it in the past. And then he says this. How do we navigate? He says, the way to navigate such waters is still to follow the book of Proverbs prescription for your words. They must be honest, few, extremely well-crafted, usually calm, always aim to edify, and they must be accompanied with lots of silent listening. And then he says, John Flavel argues in Keeping the Heart, it's a book, Puritan writer, that the second most dangerous situation to be in is adversity. But the first and greatest spiritually dangerous position to be in is prosperity. And we're living right in the midst of both of those things. And so here we are, And Peter is writing to people in his culture and context, and he wants to say some things from the outset to remind them of who they are. And not only who they are, but how did they become who they are. So let's follow along here and look look at your uh, Bible, 1 Peter, just the first six verses. First of all, who, who you are is elect exiles. To those who are elect exiles, that's who you are. How did you become elect exiles? Well, by the Trinity, the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, the work of the triune God had to work to regenerate you, to bring you to life, of which, apart from him, we would have no interest in God. And so he's the one who has caused us to be born again, given us a change in affections, that we actually have a living hope. So you say, well, where, where now is our inheritance? Where is this found, this change in affection, this living hope that we've been, caused us to be born again? That's the work of the Spirit. We call that regeneration. 
And when we speak of regeneration, we speak in terms of monergism and not synergism. And what that means is that God alone is the one who raises us up. Now, sanctification is, is there's a synergy. We work along with God, we cooperate. But how did you actually come to know Jesus? I mean, is God just up there in heaven saying, man, I sure hope that Saul, who's persecuting those Christians, I just hope he exercises his free will and I hope that he would just come and quit persecuting them. Please. Is that what, is that what God's doing in heaven? What happens to Saul? He is bent on persecuting Christians bent on killing them. And the Lord meets him and strikes him down, blinds him, and says, why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul says, references to him as the Lord. Who are you, Lord? Yeah. <laughs> and Paul is radically changed, and he says that God had chosen him before the foundation of the world. You see, God's foreknowledge is not he looked down through the tunnel of time and saw that you were going to choose him and therefore he chose you. That's not what foreknowledge is. Foreknowledge is foreloved. He foreloved you. He knew who was his. And he chose his people before the foundation of the world. So according to the foreknowledge of God, you become these elect exiles, these called people. And that's a pretty big term in First Peter. I mean, I would just encourage you to read through the epistle and just start noticing the, the mega themes that are running through there. Because the word elect is the same root where you get the word called. And just to show you that you're called elect exiles, look at the end of the epistle and look at the bookends. The very bookends of the book. We're told in First Peter 5.10, after you have suffered a little while, and how's the book begin? That now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials. It begins with a little while and ends with a little while because guess how long you're going to live? A little while. And that's it. It's just a little while. Just a bad night at a hotel, as, as someone has said. You know, you're going to look back and it's, it's, it's all just whoosh, gone. You're just this little while. In this little while, the God of all grace who has called you elected you, called out his people. That's what the church is. The church is his ecclesia, his called out people. He called you to what? His eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That may or may not happen in this life where you're going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We hope that it does, but it doesn't always do that. But we know the end is going to end well. And so he ends the book by saying that I've written to you briefly, verse 12, and exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. It's the true grace of God that you didn't choose yourself. Jesus said to his disciples, you didn't choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit. Those who were appointed to eternal life are the ones who believed, Acts 13, 48. It doesn't say they believed and therefore they were appointed to eternal life. It's the other way around. That's the true grace of God. Foreknown. Sprinkled by His blood. That's the covenant terminology in Exodus 24 where there's this covenant ceremony and they throw the blood 
And they sprinkle the blood all over the place. It's a renewing of the covenant. You've been now brought into this new covenant. And this sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, which cried out for condemnation, for justice. This better word that's speaking now, speaking this morning, speaking to your hearts. It speaks a better word. That's the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Your elect exiles, and it ends with, she who's in Babylon, who was likewise chosen, sends you greeting, and so does Mark, my son. You know, we just read over that thing, oh, it must be talking about Babylon. No, Babylon is an is a imagery. What is Babylon in Scripture? Babylon is reminding the people that you're in exile. Just as the people of God in the, in the old covenant where they went into exile down to Babylon and so Babylon is actually Rome and so he's reminding them that you're elect exiles you're these people that are now resident aliens you're now these Gentile believers that have come to Jesus and you're still citizens of the United States but you're in exile this isn't really your home Your expectation is, as Paul kind of talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, you're like, let those who are, you know, who make money, you know, don't make money like the rest of the world makes money. And those of you who are married, recognize your marriage isn't isn't ultimate. It's not everything. He's kind of giving expectations of what do you really expect this world is going to deliver to you when you're, you're an alien, you don't have all your inheritance. Look back at, at 1 Peter 1 now. Because you see, who you are, you're elect exiles. How did you get there? By the Trinity. Where's your inheritance? Well, that's in verse 4. It's kept in heaven for you. <laughs> you, you have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's good news. Do you know why that's good news? Because everything in this life is just the opposite. Everything in this life is either perishable, defiled, or fading. Think about it. Why are you struggling? Why do you have grievous trials? Because something is perishable, something's dying, something's defiled. There's been a sin, there's been hurt, there's been pain, and and there's things that are fading my reputation, or my, my, my advancement in this company, my, my place in this world. It's fading. At some point, it's going to fade. And so he's saying, but in he- this is kept in heaven for you. You are promised that it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And so when do you get it? Well, in a little while. And now we're going to experience these various trials of being slandered, maligned, insulted, Experiencing evil, reviling, people speaking against you as evildoers. Those are all in the epistle. 2.12, 3.9, 3.16, and 4.14. That's the grievous trials that Peter's getting at. And he's saying, why is this important? Well, the answer is verse 6. It's very countercultural that you would rejoice. Rejoice. You've been grieved by various trials. Rejoice. Does that sound unusual? It's very unusual, and yet it's very New Testament. So if you look over at chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, don't even be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. When you think fiery trial, what does that remind you of? 
When you think Babylon and you think fiery trial, what does that remind you of? I mean, he's trying to take you back to Daniel, put you right in the pit with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And who's with him? See, you're in Babylon, and he's reminding him, this fiery trial, don't even be surprised when it comes to you. Don't even be surprised when you're thrown into the pit. (laughs) Don't even be surprised. Don't think something strange is happening to you. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see, again and again, this epistle is going to tell you Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered walking his footsteps because Jesus is glorified and you too will be glorified as you share in his sufferings and then as you lower your expectations of what you're expecting from this life, knowing that your exaltation and your glorification and the glory is to come. And so we follow Jesus. And what did Jesus' life look like? Well, he was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Third day, he rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He went down the stairs of suffering that he would go up the stairs of glory. And what about us now? What Peter's relentlessly showing is Jesus is the ultimate sojourner and that we too follow in his steps now as believers that we're going to suffer in this life but we're going to be glorified. And so press on and have this joy in the midst of the difficulties of this life. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your table, we thank you for the sprinkled blood of Jesus. And may it lead to fresh obedience, a laying down of this world and all that we expect and hope that it would give us. Forgive us, Lord, for our worldliness, our love of this world, the desires of the eyes and the desires of the flesh, and all the things that we think the world can give us that would bring us ultimate value and identity and purpose. We lay that all down. Thank you that we have it in Jesus. We pray that, Lord, we would experience your grace and your forgiveness afresh, that it would bring this renewal to us, that we would live lives differently for your glory, not for ours. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.